0: Today's scripture reading will begin Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, and I'll be reading from the NIV. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so.
1: On May 1st of this year, a small plane crashed in the Colombian jungle with seven people on board. You may have heard about it in the news because the two pilots died in the crash As did the mother of four children, but the four children survived the crash. Those children were aged 13, 9, 9, 4, and 1. They were stranded in the middle of the Amazon jungle by themselves for the next 40 days until they were discovered by rescue workers. Their ages were 13, 9, 4, and 1. And they survived one of the most harshest environments on planet Earth by themselves for 40 days. How did they do that? Well, one thing that came out in the reports was that these children are members of the indigenous Hutoto group, if I even pronounce that remotely closely. And from a young age, they became well-versed in jungle survival. The Toto people learn hunting, fishing, and gathering. And these children's grandfather told reporters that their eldest child, the 13-year-old, was very familiar with the jungle. So these children, they survived a harsh environment, teeming with venomous snakes, jaguars, intense rainstorms, and fruit that, if eaten, would kill you simply because they had learned how to survive in it. And the point is that sometimes our survival is completely contingent on our education. And nowhere is this more true than in the spiritual realm. Our spiritual survival is largely contingent on our spiritual education. Think about the words of Jesus as he combated temptation. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? The Word of God. Our spiritual education matters greatly because it will impact our spiritual survival. But when it comes to the work of the church, spiritual education often gets relegated to the back seat. What I mean is that It often seems as though we don't talk about education nearly as much as we talk about evangelism and service and fellowship and worship. We've had specific presentations and specific sermons geared towards those other subject matters, but we don't usually take time during worship to talk about education. Well, this morning we're going to take a little hiatus from our study of the names of God. We'll return to that next week. But today we're going to talk about spiritual education. You might be asking why. It's because next month we're launching a new educational ministry that will, to some degree, change the face of our adult Bible classes here. And what we're going to talk about this morning are the key principles found in Scripture that are influencing that new educational initiative. At the close of this service, we'll even have a brief presentation about our new educational ministry that's set to launch next month. But I want to help us to understand the importance of education as it's described in Scripture and what our role is in that education. And I'm going to limit it to three major points today. And I apologize that there is no handout. Our copy machine is broken. I could not produce it this week. So therefore, we do not have it for this Sunday. Hopefully, by next week, they'll be back. But the first thing I want you to know about spiritual education is that it is the responsibility of the congregation. Now, this was hard for me to wrap my mind around initially because I understand, and I'm sure you do too, that your faith development is your responsibility. Your spiritual growth is your responsibility, not mine. We have passages in Scripture, like Acts chapter 17, where we find out that that we are responsible, just like the Bereans, for examining the Scriptures to see if the things taught from this pulpit are so. That's your responsibility. And then you can go over to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, where we're informed that we're to add to our faith knowledge. That's an individual responsibility, every single one of us, is expected to add certain things to our faith, including knowledge. That's on you, and that's on me. And we can also go to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1, where we find out that we individually are responsible for testing the spirits to see whether they are from God. But on top of all of those individual responsibilities that relate to our own faith development and our own education and our own spiritual growth, we'll come across texts that present a biblical precedent for God's family to be providers of spiritual education. See, if you go back to the Old Testament, under Mosaic law, the priest's role was to teach the people of Israel all of the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. You can read that here in Leviticus chapter 10, particularly verse 11. This was the assignment given by God to Aaron. The first high priest. And you can see that role manifest itself through the life of the Israelites. When the Jewish people returned to the promised land after their exile in Babylon and Persia, we read in Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10 that Ezra, the priest of the day, set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. In the institution that was the children of Israel, that were the first people chosen by God, he set aside certain people to teach his expectations, to teach his will, to teach his words, to teach his law to others. In the church today, we are collectively a holy priesthood and a royal priesthood, according to 2 Peter chapter 2. In other words, every single one of us is a priest now, but not every one of us is equipped to teach. So God provided some specific individuals with the responsibility and the ability to provide spiritual education in the church. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4 with me. We're going to look at verses 11 through 14 in particular. But right now, just pay attention to verse 11. It says and he, a reference to Christ, Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Let's pause right there and pay special attention to these different roles that are identified here. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now we know who the apostles are. The apostles are a select group of individuals initially appointed by Christ, the original twelve chosen by him after a night of prayer. Matthias was then added in Acts chapter 1 to replace Judas, who had killed himself. And then Paul affirms on many occasions that after his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, he became an apostle to the Gentiles. And so, 14 named men bear the official title of apostle in the New Testament. There are a couple of other guys who are called apostles, but only because the term apostle means one who is sent. It is a generic term. However, in the context of the apostles mentioned here, it's a reference to those individuals named to this specific role to represent Christ as witnesses, eyewitnesses of his resurrection. And the role of the apostles was Educational. They were teachers. We're told in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 that the the, the church in its infancy devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's because they didn't have the New Testament in its completion like we do today. They had the sacred scriptures. They had what we would refer to as the Old Testament. But for information divinely inspired by God to uh, supplement their knowledge of His will in accordance with the new covenant that came through Christ... That's where the apostles came in. They were the communicators of that message from the Lord. They were the ones who had the divine knowledge to share. And so they were the teachers of the day. You can get to Acts chapter 6. When the church uh, instituted or appointed, I should say, some men to oversee the distribution of food to the widows, they did so, according to Acts chapter 6, so that the apostles would not have to give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. The apostles were educators, but they weren't the only educators. You also had the prophets. Now, when we think of prophets, we tend to think about these individuals, particularly in the Old Testament, who had predictive capabilities. But prophecy in, itself, in and of itself is not predictive. Some prophets fulfilled that function, but a prophet is simply one who proclaims a message, a speaker, a spokesperson. And if you go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 3, you get a good idea of what prophecy really meant in the first century church because it's there in the context of this whole chapter in which Paul outlines uh, orderly and appropriate conduct and activity during worship. He said these words, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 3. The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. He did not say they speak to tell you what's going to happen in the future. A prophet was one who explained the relevance of the gospel and the will of God, as one commentator said. A prophet was simply a communicator, a proclaimer of God's word. In the New Testament, the role of a prophet is, is frequently mentioned, but only a handful of people are, are, are receive that designation. Paul and Barnabas are both identified as prophets in Acts chapter 13. Silas also in Acts chapter 15, and then there's a guy named Agabus who in Acts 11 and Acts 21 is identified as a prophet. And of the prophets, he's the the mention in the New Testament. He's the only one that we directly receive uh, information pertaining to predictive prophecy. See, a prophet does not have to be somebody who predicts the future. It can be someone who simply proclaims the word of God. But that means he's an educator. And then, of course, you have evangelists. you realize only two individuals in the New Testament re- are paired with the title of evangelist? One is Philip, who is referred to as an evangelist in, in Acts chapter 21 and verse 8, and the other is Timothy, whom Paul refers to as an evangelist in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 5. An evangelist is one who proclaims the good news. An evangelist is one whose primary objective is to tell about Jesus and what he has done and the salvation that comes through his sacrifice. That's the primary task of an evangelist. And that means an evangelist is an educator. And of course, there are the shepherds. A shepherd is another term for an elder or an overseer. That's evident from the fact that in Acts chapter 20 and in 1 Peter chapter 5, all three terms are used interchangeably. Shepherd is a is, is the term applied here in Acts chapter 4 to those individuals, those men who are qualified to lead the local congregation. And they're called shepherds because their primary function is to feed the flock. You know, one of the qualifications of a shepherd, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, is that he is able to teach. But not only that, if you go to Acts chapter 20 and you you read Paul's interaction with the Ephesian elders and the instructions he gave them, one thing he told those shepherds that they must be able to do is to protect the flock by confronting and addressing and correcting false teaching. You see, shepherds inherently have an educational responsibility because they must be able to teach and they must be able to correct false teaching. And finally, in this list, you have teachers. And actually, in the Greek language, teachers is more likely paired with shepherds as two different responsibilities of one role because the Greek language does not present a separate article in front of the word teachers. That's why it says the shepherds and teachers, not the shepherds and the teachers. So in the Greek language, teachers might actually just be paired with shepherds, to describe in more full their responsibility. But we have to admit that throughout the New Testament, there is this role of teachers mentioned on several occasions, like in Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And there are some people who have that unique ability and talent to teach. Paul will refer to himself as a teacher on multiple occasions. And James tells us that not many should pursue this role. So this term of teachers is is also a reference to a particular category of individuals who take on the role of educating others concerning the things of God and the duties of man. I ran down that list just so you understand, number one, why Paul identified all five different titles. Because they speak to people who have different roles. And yes, some people might fulfill more than one of those roles. Peter was an apostle but he was also technically the first evangelist because he preached the first gospel sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Paul is, just, is identified in Scripture as an apostle, as a prophet, as a teacher. And I forgot to mention Peter was also a shepherd. So one individual could fulfill multiple of these roles, but all of them are educational roles. And what Paul is going to say here in Ephesians chapter 4 is that Jesus has given all of these roles to the church for a purpose, If you pick up the reading of Ephesians chapter 4 in verse 12, it says, To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunningness, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That's a long run-on sentence. Paul loves to do that. He would fail English today. He loves these long run-on sentences. Let's simplify what this sentence is saying. Ultimately, Christ empowered these spiritual educators so that they could equip and build up the church in order to help it mature in the areas of faith and knowledge and thereby avoid chasing false doctrine. What Paul is saying is there are specific roles in the church. Men equipped with specific talents, abilities, and skills, and assigned particular roles to educate the congregation so that it reaches maturity. And so what this passage is ultimately telling us is that the church has an educational responsibility. It's your responsibility to develop your own faith, to grow your own faith, but the church is designed to provide the necessary resources and opportunities to assist you in that development. We just need to understand that responsibility and appreciate it in the context of the church. Beyond that, the Bible also says that spiritual education should cause individual maturation. Your spiritual education should mature you. Now I've already mentioned that in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6 knowledge is identified as an attribute that we are instructed to add to our faith. Later in that same letter, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 Peter instructs us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that knowledge is something that we that we must add and something that we must grow implies that it is not inherent. You are not born into this world with knowledge. You have to obtain it. That's why parents have to teach their children to walk. That's why parents have to teach their children to talk. That's why parents have to teach their children how to feed themselves. And as we're in the process of doing and doing so miserably, teach your children to use the bathroom correctly. There are things you don't inherently know. You have to learn them. And s- similarly, from a spiritual perspective, you're not born again with the knowledge of every spiritual matter. When Jesus gave us the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20, he instructed us to make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That addresses how one becomes a child of God, how one becomes a disciple, how one becomes a Christian. But Jesus also instructs us to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. That instruction comes after baptism. That instruction addresses how one matures as a Christian, how one matures as a disciple. Jesus anticipated the need for new disciples to be taught Simply because knowledge is not inherent, it must be obtained, it must be learned. And that makes the instructions that appear in Hebrews chapter 5 and 6 that we read earlier so significant. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now, I didn't read verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 5. At the end of verse 11, the author called his readers dull of hearing, or poor listeners, or slow to understand, depending on what translation you read. In other words, Paul, in the politest Greek possible, called his readers ignorant. The terminology being used here connotes culpable negligence as one author said. In other words, Paul is telling, I mean, the author of Hebrews is telling his readers that they had become spiritually lazy. And their spiritual laziness is evidenced by the fact that they had failed to progress educationally. They had not increased their knowledge. They had not grown in their understanding of God's word or God's will. His o- the overarching point that we need to take away from this passage in Hebrews 5 and 6 is that there is a biblical expectation that we will progress in our knowledge of God's will and God's word. You know, that same a- expectation exists in academics. We expect students to progress from basic arithmetic to algebra one day. We expect in our workforce, we expect those employees to progress from the status of a rookie or a greenhorn or an apprentice to that of a professional, a veteran, a master of their skill. And what the author of Hebrews is criticizing in this text is the fact that these Christians to whom he is writing have been in the church, have been in Christ long enough that by now they ought to be teachers, by now they ought to be veterans, by now they ought to be masters, by now they ought to be professionals in faith. But they have been so spiritually lazy that they need to relearn the basic principles of God. They never left rookie status. They never left greenhorn status. They never stopped being an apprentice He instructs them to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. In other words, he's calling on them to be intentional about educational maturation. Biblically speaking, there's an expectation that we will not settle for elementary-esque, freshman-level, introductory knowledge of God's will and God's word. There is a biblical expectation that we will transition from milk to meat, just like a child transitions from the bottle to the plate. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone will make the transition at the same pace. As we've experienced in our own family with our own two distinct children, not everyone is ready to eat solid food at the same time. But everyone should be moving in the direction of a more substantial diet as they mature. What does this mean for you? It means that you should be pursuing greater depths of knowledge it should mean that you are intentional about trying to grow your faith and to grow your understanding of god's word what it means for the church is that it is responsible for providing nourishment for every dietary level there must be opportunities for those who need milk to have milk and there must be opportunities for those who need meat to get meat And there must be an intentional plan to help people transition from milk to meat as they grow spiritually. The Bible says that spiritual education should cause individual maturation. And that's your responsibility, and that's the church's responsibility too. And finally, the Bible says that spiritual education should lead to personal application. I came across an article some time back that said that 600,000 people have heart bypass surgery annually in the United States. Now, heart bypass surgery is a procedure to restore normal normal blood flow to an obstructed coronary artery, and without that procedure, many people risk death due to blockages in their arteries. And following bypass surgery, individuals are typically given the same instructions to if you're if you're a smoker, stop smoking. Eat healthier. Get exercise. And the survey in this article from years ago pointed out that within 2 years, 90% of heart bypass patients have not made any changes. They were on the brink of death if they didn't have the surgery. But after the surgery, they continued to ignore the doctor's orders, which just goes to show that having knowledge does not guarantee life change. Here's the point. Education isn't just about obtaining knowledge. Education includes knowing how to use that knowledge. If you know something, but you don't apply it, you don't put it into practice, then did you really know it? You know, I think James makes that point well. If you look at James chapter 3 and verse 13, James poses a rhetorical question. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? He goes on to answer it and says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. James indicates that wisdom and understanding are demonstrated by what we do. And if you skip ahead one chapter, James chapter 4, and verse 17, James ends up saying, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. In other words, if you fail to do what you know, then you don't really know it because you refuse to apply it. If you fail to do what you know, then you don't really know it because you refused to apply it. You know, in the Western world, we think that you know something, you get the education, and then you go out and do it. That's how we operate. But in the Eastern world, in the the world in which Jesus lived, they operated with the mentality that you didn't really know something until you did it. And I think this is illustrated in one of Jesus' most popular parables. The parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. The parable talks about this guy who was traveling to Jericho, was mugged and left for dead. Two religious leaders pass by and, and don't help him. Finally, this guy of a different ethnicity comes by and becomes the hero of the story because he does something to help the man. And after telling that parable, Jesus asked this question, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the correct response was the one who showed mercy. In other words, the one who proved to be a neighbor was the one who did something. Now, notice what Jesus said next. He did not say, you go and feel likewise. He didn't say, you go and think likewise. He said, you go and do likewise. Why did he say that? I think it's because, as one preacher said, you don't really know it until you show it. Your demonstration of your knowledge, your living out that knowledge, reveals whether or not you truly know it. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, am I doing what I know? If not, James says in James chapter 1, verse 23 and 24, that we're like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, then goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Now, what's the purpose of a mirror? Because I, I bet a lot of you looked in one this morning, and there's a few of you who didn't. But we look in a mirror because it offers a firsthand account of our current appearance. You look in a mirror to see if there's anything you need to do. You look in the mirror to see if you need to fix your hair or to get something out of your teeth or to apply some makeup. You look in a mirror to see what needs to be done to your appearance in the moment. And James points out that if you don't do what you know you ought to be doing, it's like looking in the mirror and walking away without doing anything. James's point is that you don't really know something if you don't act upon it. See, spiritual education is not meant to just be the process of gaining information. Spiritual education is meant to produce transformation. And that's why there must be an emphasis on application when it comes to education. The things you learn must be applied. And so when we talk about spiritual education, we also have to talk about application. Because spiritual education means that we're going to apply what we learn in God's Word to our everyday lives. I mentioned Jesus' words earlier when he was tempted. He was actually quoting Moses who said in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, a man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Let me reiterate, your survival not only necessitates physical sustenance, but it also necessitates spiritual sustenance. But the question you really got to ask yourself is, do you hunger and thirst for the spiritual like you do the physical? Do you hunger and thirst for the spiritual like you do the physical. Right now, there's some tummies growling out there. There are some stomachs that are contemplating where I'm going for lunch when this guy shuts up. Does your soul hunger for righteousness? Does your spirit within you thirst for that eternal? eternal life-giving water? Does your inner person hunger and thirst for greater knowledge of God and His will? There's a story told about Socrates. A young man came to him on one occasion asking for knowledge. The young man said, Oh great Socrates, I come to you for knowledge. And Socrates led that young man through the streets of town down to the sea and walked chest deep into the water. And he asked the young man, what is it that you want? And the young man said, oh, wise Socrates, I want knowledge. Knowledge. Socrates grabbed him by the shoulders and shoved him under the water and held him there for about 30 seconds and then let him up and the guy was gasping for air and Socrates said, What do you want? The guy said, I I want knowledge, Socrates. And Socrates grabbed him, shoved him under the water and held him there for 40 seconds, let him back up and that guy's gasping for air and once again Socrates asks, What do you want? The guy says, I want knowledge and Socrates shoved him under there for a minute. When that guy came up gasping for air for this third time, Socrates, what do you want? And the guy said, I want air! I want to breathe! And Socrates said, when you want knowledge like you want air, that's when you'll get knowledge. When you want to grow your faith, when you want to quench that thirst for righteousness, like you want to quench that hunger for a burger, you'll get it. When you want a drink of that eternal life-giving water like you want a fresh, cold ice water on a hot day like we have right now, then you'll get it. But it starts with that that thirst. It starts with what Jesus said in the the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 when he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And we intend to be a congregation that assists in satisfying that hunger and quenching that thirst. And at the close of this service, you'll hear more about how we intend to do that. But right now, you simply need to ask yourself, am I hungering and thirsting for righteousness? And if you're not, what is it that needs to change? And how can we help? We invite you to come if you want to hunger and thirst for righteousness. While together we stand and sing.